Yeah, welcome Harbor family. Really good to see you. Hope you had a great week. I had a really great week. Um, I got to be in God's word with a different group of people almost every day this week, which doesn't normally happen. I don't know, maybe you thought the pastors just read the Bible all day long, every day. Well, most of my weeks over the last few months have been filled with meetings about like organizational structures and HR policies and annual budgets. My weeks lately have been probably a lot like your weeks. And so it has been such a privilege this week just to be in God's Word Tuesday with our staff and then with our community group, and then Wednesday with the other Harbor pastors digging into God's Word, Thursday night with the Harbor Church Planters cohort digging deep into God's Word. It has just been such a rich week for me and a reminder to me of what a gift God's Word is. Being able to just just, just milk in, just marinate in God's Word all week, it's just been great. I'm sure you feel the same way about God's Word, most of the time, most of the time, because there's verses in the Bible that we all love. We post them on social media. We put them on our coffee mugs. Like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're like, all right, put that on a coffee mug. I love that verse. Other verses like, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. We're like, yes, I will claim that promise for myself. You can find those kind of verses on knickknacks at Ross's because everybody loves those verses, right? Other verses, not so much. What about God is not mocked for you will reap whatever you sow. Do you have that on your coffee mug at home? You ever seen that at Ross's? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he punishes every son he receives. Have you ever posted that on Instagram? Have you ever put that one up on your feed? No, we don't cling to those verses, but those are some of the kinds of verses we should have on our coffee mugs. Those are the knickknacks we should have up on our walls because here's the thing we gotta remember. God does things on both sides. He does things that seem contradictory but are actually complementary, and he does it all the time. In fact, every good parent does that. Every good coach, every good mentor does the same thing. Disciplining and developing, correcting and confirming, reforming and reinforcing. Two different things that seem contradictory but are actually complementary. One side is a lot more negative. At least it feels that way. feels bad. The other side feels more positive, feels good. But both sides are necessary to build us up, and that's what God is trying to do with every one of us. That's the goal that God has for each one of us. He said it in Ephesians 4. His goal is to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature that is measured by Christ's fullness. What an amazing thing. God is building you up until you look like Jesus Christ. He's always doing that. But sometimes that means tearing you down a little bit. That's what we're gonna see today in the history of Israel. So if you got your Bible, open to Joshua chapter seven. We've been making our way through this epic book and Joshua chapter seven starts to turn a little corner here because last week we experienced the thrill of victory. It was the miraculous victory over Jericho. This week, we're gonna see the agony of defeat. We are gonna see them just suffer humiliating loss at AI. 
This city called Ai, the actual pronunciation is more like Ai, and uh, I don't wanna say that all morning long. So we'll just go with Ai. We're all talking about Ai lately anyways. They're gonna experience this epic defeat, and Joshua is gonna tell us exactly why it happens right at the beginning. God has been so faithful to Israel for so long, but chapter seven, verse one, the Israelites, however, the Israelites were unfaithful. Unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart. What does that mean? He looted Jericho when they came into Jericho. He took some spoils of war against the direct command of God. And so it says here, the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. So verse two, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Avon, east of Bethel. And he told them, go up and scout the land. And so the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people yeah, just send 2,000, 3,000 men to attack Ai. That's all we need. That's all it's going to take. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. And so about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled. They fled from the men of Ai. Back at Jericho, God made the seemingly impossible possible. At Ai, he's making the easily possible impossible. Verse five, the men of Ai struck down, struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost hearts. That's just a few days, maybe a few weeks after their big win at Jericho. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. You're celebrating a big W when you just get kneecapped. You get sideswiped. You get blindsided by a big L that you just were not expecting. Like last week, I was getting ready to celebrate the W with the Niners. You know, they're up 10 points, 10 point lead. And they're playing against Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. I mean, that whole team together, the unholy trinity. How can you go against them, right? Only the Lord could deliver that kind of victory against that team. So it's looking good. We're 10 points ahead. I'm getting ready to pull out the red and gold confetti when somebody reminds me, hey, wait a minute. Weren't the Niners up 10 against the Chiefs the last time they were in the Super Bowl? That didn't end very well for them. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but this Niners team, they're totally different, totally different team. The problem was the Chiefs, they're still exactly the same team. And so Patrick Mahomes did what Patrick Mahomes always does. The Niners came from ahead to get the loss in the Super Bowl. That shouldn't have happened. Just two quarters before that, man, it shouldn't have happened. Well, that is what Israel is experiencing right here. That's what's going on here. This should be an easy W at this point. So why is it an L? Well, God told us why right at the beginning. One man in Israel disobeyed God, and so God is disciplining Israel. He's carrying out discipline on them. And so it says Israel lost heart. The other surrounding nations lost heart when they saw God against them. Now Israel is feeling a little bit of the same feeling. They lost heart because that's how we always respond to God's correction. We don't like it. 
Nobody does, not even Joshua. Look at how Joshua responds. Verse six, it says, then Joshua tore his clothes, fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why do you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? Joshua, bro, you lost 36 guys, okay? It's not the end of the world. You're not destroyed yet. He's getting a little dramatic here. If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. Really, Joshua? You loved hanging out in the wilderness? If only we had stayed there, what can I say, Lord? Now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies, when the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. But didn't God promise that he would never allow the name of Israel to depart from this earth? How, how is that gonna happen, Joshua? And then he throws in this little manipulative line, then what will you do about your great name, God? Don't you love that? Your name is at stake, God. To me, he sounds like a five-year-old throwing a fit because he can't go down to the fun factory like he thought he was going to be able to. How will I go on living? That's what Joshua is saying here. We, we all get a little emo when God disciplines us. So verse 10, the Lord then said to Joshua, stand up. Stand up, fool. Why have you fallen face down? Why are you down on the ground? Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. They've violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They've taken some of what was set apart. They've stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They'll turn their backs and run from their enemies because they've been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. The things that have been stolen that were supposed to go into my treasury that are now being possessed by you. You don't mess with the things that belong to God. You don't mess with them. Why is that? Is it because God is some mafia boss? You mess with him and he sends Vinny and Luigi over to break your knees? Is that what's going on here? No. It's because he doesn't want Israel to become greedy and covetous and idolatrous like all the, the other nations around them. He wants to build them up. So he says in verse 13, go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You'll not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned, along with everything he has, because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Maybe like, Wait, it's just one guy. It's just one sin. Yeah, but one guy's sin is affecting everyone else around him. And that's how sin works, family. That's how sin works. You think that your sin is just between you and God. 
It's just private. It only affects me. You think nobody else knows. You think nobody else is affected. I hate to break it to you, but everybody knows. Everybody is affected. They may not know exactly what's going on with you, but they know something's going on with you. And they're affected by that. You can't keep one little sin contained in one little area. It's going to bleed into every other area of your life, and it's going to affect everybody else around you. It will. That's what Joshua's discovering here. So it says that he follows God's instructions. He goes tribe by tribe, family by family, until he gets to this man, Achan. He says to Achan, tell me what you've done. And look down at verse 20. It says, Achan replied to Joshua, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and I took them. You can see for yourself, they're concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. And that tells you a lot right there. The fact that Achan hid the treasure shows you that he knew it was wrong. He wasn't ignorant about this. And <laughs> one of the other harbor pastors pointed out to me this week, there's not a lot of places to hide stuff when you're living in a tent, right? You've been camping lately? There's nowhere to hide anything in a tent. So the rest of the family knew exactly what Achan did. The rest of the family was in on it. So here's the consequences. Verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and he brought them up to the valley of Achor. That's significant there. Achan's name means trouble in Hebrew. Now they are renaming this entire valley after him. This is the valley of trouble. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today, the Lord will bring you trouble. And so all Israel stoned them to death. They burned the bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Which sounds barbaric, I know. We're only talking about a bar of gold, bar of silver, a robe? Really? It's not that much. He just slipped a few things in his back pocket. That's all that happened. I mean, what's the big deal? Well, here's the illustration that I use with my kids whenever they ask me that kind of question. What if I put a quarter teaspoon of cow manure in your cup and didn't tell you until after you drank it? It's not that much. What's the big deal? You would explode, right? Any one of you. I put a quarter teaspoon in your cup of coffee and I tell you after, you would explode. Why? Because there are certain things that you don't tolerate, not even a little. You and God are exactly the same. You're exactly the same, except your list of things you don't tolerate is just slightly different than God's. Your list includes cow manure in your coffee, and, I don't know, work meetings on Friday afternoons, um, 
people who don't hit you back within 10 seconds with a text after you hit them. Your list is like that. Those are the things you're like, I will not tolerate that. I will not stand for that. God's list is things like dishonesty, disobedience, coveting. That's what brought all this out. Achan himself confessed it. He said, when I saw the gold, the silver, and the cloak, I coveted them. Coveting, that's what leads so many of us into so much trouble, just like Achan. In the New Testament, it says, covetousness is idolatry. You're worshiping a demon, worshiping a false god whenever you covet. And so that's why God disciplines us when we fall into that. There's a big reason why God disciplines us, because we covet in two different ways. Number one, we covet what God has. We covet what God has. Like Achan, he thought he deserved the gold and the silver because he fought in the battle. To the victor go the spoils, right? Everybody knows that. The problem is that Achan forgot that he wasn't the victor. God was. He's not the one who delivered Jericho. God did. And so he's taking things that belonged to God. That's what we've done since the Garden of Eden. Back when Adam and Eve wanted God's wisdom and God's knowledge, and they thought that if they ate the apple or whatever kind of fruit it was, that then they could have it. They were coveting what God has. And we do it all the time. You do it all the time. Every time you complain about anything, that's what you're doing. Complain about anything. What are you saying? You're saying, I could do a better job running this world than God does. If I was in charge, my life wouldn't be like this. If I was in charge, that wouldn't be like that. You're coveting God's power, God's authority, God's control. We covet what God has. And then number two, we covet what the world has. Because Achan didn't just take the gold and silver. It says he took a beautiful cloak from Babylon. Oh, Babylon. That was, in those days, like Milan or, or Paris today. It's where fashion trends were born. So what happened? Achan is fighting in Jericho. He fights into some guy's house, kills everybody in the house, looks in the guy's closet, and sees this beautiful outfit in front of him from Babylon. He sees this incredible outfit like Balenciaga shoes and Louis Vuitton jeans, and then he looks down at his own outfit like old crusty slippers from Long's, local slippers, and ripped up musty jeans from Ross's, and he looks again at that fit, and he's like, oh. He starts imagining himself strutting across Canaan like a boss wearing that outfit. And so he takes it. He wants what the world has. He's coveting success that he sees in the world, just like we covet the success that we see in people's posts. Oh, already hit a million in sales and it's only February. Glory to God. Yeah. He's coveting the respect that he sees other people getting from the world, like the comments from the post. Yeah, go get some. You deserve it. Aiken's going, yeah, I need to get some because I'm pretty sure I deserve it just as much as any of these fools. So he takes it. 
He takes whatever he has to to get something that'll make him feel secure, respectable. It's what we all do. It says in 1 John 2, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, it is not from the Father, but from the world. It's not gonna satisfy us like God does, but we still want it. We covet what God has, we covet what the world has, and so sometimes God has to discipline us for that. Here's how he does it. He disciplines us by taking away his favor and replacing it with failure. Sometimes God does that. He takes away his failure and replaces it with failure. He took away his favor from Achan and from all of Israel and he replaced it with failure when they went into battle. And that's his loving discipline. That's part of his love. So whenever we experience any failure in life, it's a good practice to ask ourselves, could God be disciplining me for something? Not is God punishing me. All of his punishment went on Jesus Christ on the cross. He couldn't be punishing me if I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, but he might be disciplining me. Is there something that God's trying to teach me right now? That's not the case every time. Sometimes God might be disciplining someone close to you and you just get collateral damage, which is why every time something bad happens, I go to Cindy and I'm like, what did you do, babe, all right? It was something you did. Every once in a while, though, he's disciplining me for something. And so I have to ask myself, what is it, Lord? Why am I experiencing this failure in whatever area of life right now? I don't know what kind of failures you've experienced. Maybe there's a school that you were dying to get into and you got rejected. Maybe there's a job that you loved and you got laid off. Maybe there's a big initiative that you're trying to launch and it just flopped. And maybe, not definitely, but maybe that happened because you were coveting what God has or coveting what the world has. Maybe that school, that job, that initiative was more valuable to you than God. You loved that thing more than God, and so he took it away from you. He made it fail. And I know that hurts. I know it. I've experienced it. But in the long run, God knows that you're never going to find joy and peace and comfort and security in that thing the way that you will from him. He's disciplining you so that he can bless you, so he can build you up. Look at how he's building up Israel. In the last part of verse 26, it says, then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor, still today. And then chapter eight, verse one, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Yeah, because God's discipline isn't supposed to make you fearful. It's supposed to make you free. It's just like when you discipline your kids. Your kids thrive when you set clear boundaries and then stick to them. When your kids know exactly how far they can go, they feel incredible freedom knowing I can go this far and, and no further. When they have no idea how far they can go, your kids feel fear. Can I go there? Can I go there? I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen. And guess what? You're just the same as your kids. You're no different. When God disciplines you, it shows you that he cares for you. It shows you that he wants the best for you. It shows you that he's guiding you, directing you. 
Look at the kind of guidance and direction he's given to the Israelites. At the end of verse one, God says, take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I've handed over to you the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. Treat Ai and its king as you did Jericho and its king, except here's the difference this time. You may plunder its spoil and livestock for yourselves. Set up an ambush behind the city. So he's moving from disciplining to developing, from reforming to reinforcing. Like every good parent, every good coach. And notice, there's no miracles involved here. The walls of Ai, they're not gonna come miraculously tumbling down. God has just given them a really practical battlefield strategy, set an ambush. And according to Joshua, that's exactly what they do. They follow his instructions. Joshua takes half of his troops, sends them to one side of the city to draw out all of the troops of Ai to fight them. And at the same time, he secretly sends the other half of his troops to the other side of the city so they could ambush the city from behind and defeat it. So this time, they defeat Ai just as easily as they defeated Jericho. And so look at what it says down in verse 27. Chapter 8, 27, it says, Israel plundered the cattle and spoil of that city for themselves according to the Lord's command that he had given Joshua. They got everything they wanted. Man, if only Achan had just waited a couple days, waited a couple weeks at most, he would have walked away with way more than a couple bars of silver and gold and a Babylonian robe. He settled for that. Man, he would have received cattle if he had only waited a couple days. Cattle in those days, that was like receiving a stock portfolio. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It makes you richer every single day when you got cattle. Before Israel was experiencing God's discipline, painful. Now they're experiencing God's development, joyful. And God is always doing the same thing. Always doing the same two things. For us. So we got to recognize it and receive it. You see God's discipline in failure. How can you see God's development? How can you look out for the ways that God is developing you? I can see a few things in this passage. Number one, look for God's guidance. That's what he was given to Israel. Gave him some really practical strategies. And God has got really practical strategies for you in your life too. Just read the book of Proverbs. Man, just read one verse a day. You'll walk away every day with a nugget of intensely practical guidance that'll change your life that day. There's so much practical insight in Proverbs. Go and talk to, to a believer who's a, a few steps down or a few miles further down the journey of life than you. Just ask them what they've done. They'll have a wealth of guidance for you, what to do and especially what not to do. God is always giving his guidance. You just have to look for it. And then number two, look for God's encouragement. Like he said to Israel, I've handed over to you the king of Ai and his city and his land. You're gonna see a victory. I guarantee it. And he says the same thing to us. Romans 8, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No way. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yeah, you might experience affliction and distress. You might experience persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. 
But even in the middle of that, God's guarantee to you is that he's made you a conqueror over it because you have Jesus and Jesus defeated all those things at the cross. God is always giving that kind of encouragement. Look for it. And then number three, look for God's reward. Like he gave Israel the spoils of the battle. Like it says in Hebrews 11, whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You can't draw near to God unless you expect him to reward you. How is he gonna reward you? I don't know, cattle? I don't know, might start a dairy farm? I don't know what, well, the ways God might bless you. He might bless you in all kinds of ways. But more than any of those things, we know he's gonna reward you with the joy and peace and comfort of Christ, which is better than any other thing that he could ever give you. You remember how Israel renamed the valley, the Valley of Achor, named it after the guy God killed because his name meant trouble and his sin caused trouble for all of Israel, so much so that they named a whole valley after him? Well, that's not the end of the story for the Valley of Achor. Look at the promise that God made to Israel a few hundred years after all this happened. They were experiencing more of his discipline. Look at what it said in Hosea 2. God says, I'm going to persuade her. I'm going to lead her to the wilderness. Yeah, there's going to be some more discipline for Israel. But I'm going to speak tenderly to her. There, I'll give her vineyards back to her. I'll make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. Does God's judgment come in response to sin? Does his discipline come in response to sin? Absolutely. That's why we can't take sin lightly. But we have this promise that God uses his discipline to build us up so he can bless us. Who can turn the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope? Only the person who went into the valley of Achor on our behalf. Only the one who took the trouble of Achor for us. Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins and then turned the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope through his resurrection from the grave. That's why we can have hope. Jesus gave everything for us, everything. And so, unlike Achan, we can give everything for him. Look at how the story ends in verse 30. Verse 30 says, At that time Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal to the Lord, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the Lord's servant, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones. That's significant there. Uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. Then they offered burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings on it. They did what Achan was unwilling to do. He withheld from God. They willingly offered everything to God. But notice, they offered their sacrifice on an altar of uncut stones. No human tool had ever beautified these stones, squared off these stones, made these stones look more acceptable. Why? Because there's nothing acceptable that we have to offer God except what he already has given to us. 
We've got nothing that we can offer God that's gonna impress him. God looks at the Eiffel Tower and the Great Wall of China and the Las Vegas Strip, all the things that make us go, wow. And he says, oh, that's cute. We've got nothing to offer God except what he's already given to us. Like it says in that great old hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. That's all we have to offer to God. Only the grace and gifts that we've received from God through his discipline and his development. Through his correcting and confirming. So that's what we're gonna do right now. As we close in prep, I want you to close your eyes and just stretch out your hands like this. Could we all do this? Stretch out your hands, open and empty. Open and empty because you've got nothing to offer God except what he's already given to you. So what is it? What is it that you've received from God that you need to offer back to God this week? Father, we have empty hands outstretched before you because we've got nothing. Nothing of any significance, nothing impressive, nothing beautiful to give to you except what you've already given to us. So Lord, help us to learn from Achan to not covet the things that you have or covet the things that the world has but graciously receive whatever you give us and then offer it right back to you. Help us to give everything to you because we know that Jesus gave everything for us, including his own life. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.